Hello there and welcome to the Every Ounce Podcast. Here we talk all things mental health, wellness, and resilience. I'm your host Lexi and I am determined to bring you a one-stop shop for all things related to mental might. Join us for talks about naps and fruit snacks to the most real and raw conversations of life. This is where you will find community, validation, and most importantly, strength. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today I've got Mibi Bradshaw with me. She's a student that I went to school with at UVU and she hopes to eventually get a master's degree in social work. In this episode, we'll be talking about inmates and mental health, stigma around social justice and advocacy for change. Mibi, I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lexi. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So first of all, introduce yourself. How did you get into the work that you're doing? So I um, was born and raised in Hawaii and met the love of my life, um, who was in a severe car accident and got a TBI. Um, And he also had some unresolved addiction problems that stemmed from untreated mental health problems. But the accident uh, just exaggerated all of it, right? And so from 2006, until 2020, I was his primary caregiver and I became his social worker. I became his case manager. I became his therapist because there were no resources for him. Um, Because of that accident, he actually also ended up um, going to prison for 18 months. And so I had to fight to get him up there. And so basically for 15 plus years, I had to advocate for him without having any advocate for me. I didn't have any knowledge. I didn't have any experience. I didn't have any background. And so it led me to realize how broken the system is and how many people were in similar situations to me where they just didn't know what to do. And that's why a lot of people end up just homeless or dead or in prison because they don't have someone who can advocate for them. Gotcha. Oh, I wish that there was somebody to advocate for the advocates, right? Especially in this case. And that's, what's so important about the work that you're doing is like trying to change the actual system, um, which is super important. What kind of changes would you like to see? The number one. So I, um, we were in a behavioral science class together, but I was also taking an English class um, to do. And my paper was Medicaid for all severely mentally ill adults. That Mm. was the paper I wrote for the semester. The biggest change that we could do as a country is to provide Medicaid for any adult that has serious mental illness or SMI. And that means That's not our run-of-the-mill anxiety and depression. That is schizophrenia, severe bipolar, schizoaffective, you know, DID, things that make it hard for them to function. Because in every state, well, in Hawaii and Utah, I can't say every state, but in most states, the only places that have the tools and the services for people who are seriously mentally ill are through Medicaid because the assumption is they're poor, they can't keep a job, they won't be married or have family support. And so the services that are set up to help people like my husband, 
who needed it are for people who don't have any money. Now, I am not wealthy by any means. I am a middle eight, middle of the you know, run of the mill, you know, average person. I make like $45,000 a year. I don't make a lot of money, but because we were married and because I had a job, they denied him Medicaid. Even if I had a million dollars, I could not buy him into the programs that he needed to succeed. So the number one thing that we could do is provide Medicaid to any adult that has serious mental illness. Okay. I love that. I love that. So let's maybe let's backtrack a little bit. Um, let's talk more about your story. How you said you spent 15 plus years advocating for your husband, right? What did that look like? What was the everyday or or what, just what did that look like overall? What was that like? It was, there were periods of time where I did not work for months because I had to stay home and literally watch him 24 hours a day. So he wouldn't kill himself or kill somebody else. And that's not an exaggeration. I was blessed to have a family that helped me financially to be able to like live. But there, there were moments where, because, because he couldn't get into, well, in Hawaii, for example, there are no inpatient residential facilities for people unless you have committed a felony and have been sent to the forensic unit of the Utah State Hospital, like, I mean, the mm. Hawaii State Hospital. So it was basically, I had to watch him. I I had, I couldn't force feed him meds. I'd call the police to help. And they said, well, he's not actively trying to kill himself or kill you. So we can't do anything. Mm. And then they'd leave because they'd show up and suddenly he'd calm down. So he has schizophrenia. He also has bipolar. So it's that schizoaffective. He has some brain injury and he is an addict. So you combine all those things and it makes for someone who's completely out of his mind. And so it looked, there are days I could work. There are days I couldn't. There are days that I, he'd disappear. Like there would be times where he'd disappear for days, throw his phone in the ocean toss his, give his wallet to a homeless person and go on some mission into Waikiki looking for a sister he never had. So mm-hmm. it, it was like just real full-blown psychosis. And all I could do was pray and beg for help and drive around looking for him. And eventually he'd come out of it and call me collect from a payphone and say, come yeah. get me. This is where I am. Yeah. Okay. Through all of this, how do you take care of your own mental health? I didn't, I didn't for a very long time. I would say for the first eight years, I literally was drowning. Mm. I gained a ridiculous amount of weight. I was severely depressed. I, like I said, by the grace of God, I had amazing family that, that allowed me a job where I could go and I could function but I was not happy. I myself um, started to self-medicate with food. Food was my drug. And um, codependency, you know, having to, all I had to think is if I just sacrificed, if I just struggled a little bit more, maybe he'd get better. By a miracle, I, a member of the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and my bishop said, please, please get, you need to get help. I'm going to send you to a counselor because I didn't have medical insurance. Mm. 
So he sent me to an LDS counselor who happened to have been moved to Hawaii from Provo. And he worked at the Utah State Hospital for like 20 years. And that's the hospital that's severe inpatient treatment. So he had so much knowledge and he opened my mind and like was able to tell me, he told me something about a statistic and I need to look it up one day, but that caregivers die before the people they're caring for because they don't take care of themselves. Mm. He like gave me the tools and said, you have to put yourself first. And then he gave me all these resources and knowledge about how I can help Lee and help myself. And I would say that was probably about 2015. So almost 10 years into Lee's accident and the whole journey, I finally started taking care of myself. And it took another three years to to really get to a point where I could start practicing self-care and set boundaries and, and do things for myself, which led me to move to Utah because he told me about places like the Utah State Hospital. He told me what they had here that they did not have in Hawaii. And that's what led me to move here to get my husband help. Yeah. I can only imagine how much of your life this has um, influenced, right? Like financially and mm-hmm. academically and um, your relationships with family, even where you live, right? There's yeah. so much that this has been affecting you and your family. Yes. Um, and I think that's incredibly significant to point out, um, especially when we talk about changing the system, getting help, spreading awareness. Um, in what ways do you see is mental illness and mental health stigma present in situations with those that um, are in prison systems? So I think the number one thing is when drugs are involved, it automatically goes to you're just an addict. That's a loser that is doing drugs and, you know, who cares about you? People don't understand that they go hand in hand. Hmm. I don't think I've ever met someone who was an addict that didn't have unchecked mental illness issues or people who have unchecked and un diagnosed and untreated mental illnesses that don't resort to some type of addiction. And so I think that the the stigma is that, oh, they're just a druggie who cares. Let's just throw them in, you know, jail and they don't give them mental health services in jail. They don't give them counseling and, and things to actually help them function. They just do their time and throw them back out into the world. Now they have a criminal background. So good luck getting a good job a good place to live, any type of references. So what can they do? It just sends them back into the cycle. And so they need to really treat the the core issue here, which the addiction is just the symptom. It's not the true issue. Yeah. Yeah. And that was going to be my question. My next question is, did you feel like the rehabilitation of inmates is adequate? And obviously your answer to that would be no. No. It is a band-aid and they literally, they, so Lee here in Utah, I had to get to the point where I had to legally divorce him because the police would not remove him from my house because we we were married. Mm. He couldn't get Medicaid. He couldn't, there are so many things. I mean, I tried and tried and tried and finally, you know what? I, my hands are tied. So I had to legally divorce him. And then I had to keep calling the cops and keep a record. And even then they would never take him away. 
by the, I called the crisis center. And so Wasatch mental, what Wasatch Behavioral Health here in Utah County has a crisis team. And when you call them and they're, they'll come out. So this amazing man and his part, uh, this young lady came out and they were able to assess him and try and say, look, your wife doesn't want you here anymore. This and that, you know, how can we help? And he kept refusing help saying, I'd rather go be homeless in the middle of winter in Utah and die than get help. And they finally said, you know what, you are not safe. You're not making rational decisions. And they involuntarily committed him. Um, the other thing that they had to do is he went through drug court at one point and because of COVID, they wouldn't arrest him. He literally mm. took into the federal probation building and showed his probation officer that he had meth on him and they could not arrest him because of COVID. They charged him, but I wanted them to arrest him to at least try and get him into someplace, you know, to get help. I mean, so many things we have, we've had to do, but they couldn't do it. Eventually with that charge, they found him mentally incompetent and sent him to the it's Salt Lake County jail that has a mental restitution unit. So it's part of the jail, but it's separate where they go and try and basically drug you up enough with legal drugs to get you a little bit stable so they can send you out. Mm. And that's what he did. It did not help. What finally helped was getting the crisis team to get him involuntarily committed and me saying, you cannot come home. And so he ended up going into inpatient facility through Medicaid, through Wasatch Mental Health. Mm. That is, that is a significant amount of hoops that you guys have had to jump through yeah. just to get treatment that you deserve. Right. Yes. And oh, that is emotionally exhausting. Yeah. Exhausting. I cannot, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. <laughs> I remember it was for a youth activity. One time we went to go tour uh, the Davis County jail okay. and, and I remember walking through there and it was the most fascinating thing. I remember taking a tour and we were walking through all of the different kind of units and areas and whatever. And we were, I was, we were talking to some inmates towards the end about um, drug use and gangs and who knows what else. Um, but I just kept sitting there and being like, dang, maybe this is what I should go into. And I thought about that experience for days or weeks. I kept telling my mom about it and it like really, really shook me because I was so passionate about why is no one getting them adequate help? There does not seem to be anything to really rehabilitate mentally back into the world. No. Um, and I understand that they're there for some reason, right? Yes. But I don't care. Like, yeah. <laughs> still has got to be some type of rehabilitation. And if I weren't so passionate about eating disorders, that is what I would have gone into is, yeah. is the same work. Um, because I agree, there needs to be more awareness and more resources available. Yes, 100%. So in preparation for this podcast, I did some, a little Google searching and mental health America says that 1.2 million individuals living with mental illness sit in jail and prison each year. This means that more than half of all Americans in prison or jail have a mental illness. Um, And that's from the U S Bureau of justice, mental health problems and prison and jail inmates of September of 2006. So why is this never talked about? Where are all the advocates? You know, mental illness, the squeaky wheel gets the oil or I don't know, whatever the, the term is right. 
I believe that the people who are suffering with mental illness in who are incarcerated do not have any advocates. The, the only people they have are public defenders and state social workers who are overworked, underpaid, have 100 to 200 cases. They don't have the time. I dedicated my entire life to one person right. and it almost killed me. I could not imagine trying to do that for a hundred people without money or support and with laws tying my hands. As his wife, I could do a lot of things. I had a lot of rights, but as a social worker, as somebody else, a public defender, you don't have those rights. Right. Uh, and, and throwing them in jail is not the answer. If literally, if they took all of those people and instead of throwing me in jail, putting them into places like and that's through Medicaid. So it's called IRT. I don't know what it stands for, but it's in Utah County. And it's basically like the hospital, but not the hospital. It's where my husband went after he was involuntarily committed. It's called IRT. It's in Provo. It's an assisted living where they go in. They, they can't leave without permission or supervision, but they can have immediate med changes. They have doctors come in, they are supervised. They have therapy, group therapy, individual therapy, psychiatry. They get diagnoses and they get to get on meds in a controlled, stable environment where if they get put on a med and they don't feel right, they get changed the next day. In the medical world, you get put on a med, it'll try it for four to six weeks. And then come back and see if it is a four to six weeks. What someone who is dealing with severe mental illness is not going to last four to six weeks. So they really need to put people into these Medicaid facilities where they can be. And, and if it's not voluntary, they need to be committed there. And I know that's hard because of rights, right? Uh, of having your, your, your rights. I can't human rights. So it's just this fine line of where do you draw it between okay, we're going to throw them into jail, incarcerate them and feed them and house them, but not help them or actually spend the money, which I don't, I don't know what the figures are, but I can't imagine jail is cheap, you know, or throw the money into facilities where they can be diagnosed and treated. Mm. Yeah. Be my dream. Yeah. Uh, I can't imagine the tough love, right. That you've had to advocate for and uh, spread. And that is some serious, tough love. I was severely codependent. I could not do it. Um, I finally, so July, 2020 is when the divorce was final. Um, and then it was around November when we started the whole process of getting him involuntarily committed during that time when he was in IRT, I was just done. I was broken. And I just said, you know, I, I legally divorced you to help you, but now I'm done. I can't live like this anymore. You've got to do this on your own. I I'll love you. I'll support you. I'll help you. Cause I was his only advocate, but I can't be with you anymore. And I did that because I needed to be free. And it take, took about a month for our, both, both of us realized that I, I love him. I didn't do this. Yeah. I did this because I love him. I did this because of the man who he was and the man who he could be if he got the right help. And so I told him, I'll give you a year. I'll give you a year to do the work, stay in the facility, get on, stay on your meds, work through your stuff. And if we can get through the year, then we will reconcile. And on New Year's Eve, we got remarried. 
Oh, this he, past New Year's Eve? Yes. Just oh, my gosh. So he did the work and he went from the IRT to the SRT, which is the next level of living. And he did the work and they had some trial weekends at home. And then we find he finally got to the point that, and so he, we got married December 31st. That is the most beautiful story. Oh it my really gosh. Is, oh my gosh. How long have you guys been together? We got married in 2004. Originally we met in 2001. So there you go. We've known each other for 20 years married for 17 going on 18 I don't count the new marriage date we're not starting over like oh we've been married a month right right we've been together whole the whole time but yeah we've been together a long time dang look yeah. at that yeah that's awesome you are incredible maybe that is Thank that is you. incredible an incredible story um you mentioned the policies and changes that you would like to see yeah. um how do you advocate for those changes so I think talking about it, but I think the biggest thing that I can do, cause I'm just one person is to offer my assistance and my advice to anybody who's going through it, not the mentally ill, but for the other advocates, mm. there are lots of, there's so many resources for the mentally ill. If they can get it and if they can take it, but I have not found one support group. I have not found one community of spouses of severely mentally ill people, usually right. because they get married. I have found parents who have adult children that they're trying to. And I found like siblings and social workers, but there's, a, I'm sure they're out there, but there's not a lot of help for the caregivers and the advocates of the loved ones of the mentally ill. And so I think the biggest impact I can make is if I could somehow teach or show or um, inspire and help people who have been in my situation or who are in my situation to know, like learn from what I went through. Don't take 15 years. This is how you do it. This is how I did it. This is what we could do. This is where you can get help. This is how this works and see, see what, goes. The second other thing I thought of while I was in school is to teach the future social workers. Mm, yeah. Is to affect, to affect great change. I thought about doing policy change. I thought about doing, you know, getting into hospital administration and working at, but when I really think about the greatest impact is those two things, somehow creating a community of support for the caregivers and then teaching the future social workers so that they are better versed at knowing how to help and that they understand things from a very rare perspective. It's not the perspective of the mentally ill, it's the perspective of the advocate and the loved one who was in the system, but not in the system, who worked it, but wasn't bound by the rules, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So how can myself and listeners support these types of efforts? You know, I think the, the first most basic thing that you could do is to not judge mm. and to have an open heart I love and that because I think people see someone who looks like they're, you know, on crack, right? <laughs> people who are severely mentally ill, they look crazy. Okay. They, and people just write them off. Oh man, he's smoking crack. Like this guy is a druggie. 
and I did that myself until I went through it. I assumed that anybody who didn't have their teeth, any, you know, for example, a lot of antipsychotics, uh, medications cause you to lose your teeth, but people think if you've lost your teeth, it's because you've done drugs and it, that happens too. But, you know, you see all these things and you just assume, and you kind of write them off where you, so having an open heart and not judging and realizing maybe this person has something else going on. So just treating with general kindness. And then number two is if you know somebody who's struggling, I think we all know somebody who's struggling with severe, serious mental illness. If you know someone, reach out to the person that they're closest to. Because if you just approach someone who's seriously mentally ill, they'll probably not respond to you. They probably really won't trust you or not sure, but go to the person that they trust. Go to the person that that's helping them, their advocate, and see how you can help them. Sometimes it's a listening ear. Sometimes it's a meal. Sometimes it's a trip to the grocery store. I mean, you, you, I, I don't know. I only made it this far because I was so blessed with a tribe of people. I grew up, I was born and raised in Laie, Hawaii, where I had people I'd known my whole life around me. So I had friends who loved and supported me. I had church members who loved and supported me. I had family members who loved and supported me. And that's rare. Most people don't have that level of support system. And I was blessed. I had an army of people who I wouldn't have to just exhaust one of them. I could call different people at different times for help. But honestly, the things that helped the most are the people who I didn't have to call who just show up and bring us a home cooked meal or show up and say, Hey, can I take your dog for a walk? Because there are times I leave the house and I, you know, I couldn't leave or, Hey, you know, I love you. And I love you texts, you know, things like that. So reach out to the person that, you know, is caring for the mentally ill and then being open to situations when you see someone struggling to just ask, how can I help? I love that. And I think it's so simple and so sweet and genuine. Yeah. Um, things that we can definitely take into our lives and really, really act upon. Maybe are there any resources that you know of that myself or listeners can learn more about all of this subject about yes. mentally ill, prisons, yes. policy change, all of that? Number one resource is NAMI, N-A-M-I, National Alliance of Mental Illness. And so it's NAMI, NAMI.org. They have a wealth of information, statistics, reports. They themselves are advocating for Medicaid. So the Obamacare brought Affordable Care Act, which a lot of people didn't like. But the part of the Affordable Care Act that was great was Medicaid expansion, which opened up opportunities for people who could not get Medicaid before, like severely mentally ill adults, to get them. So they're actually a very big advocate of allowing Medicaid to more people. And that's where I got a lot of my resources. But they have resources for mentally ill. They have resources for people who are caregivers, for you know, doctors and social workers. So NAMI.org is the best place to go to start and to be able to get a good crash course of what's about. And they have links to support groups. They have links to... Um, resources and help. So that's my number one go-to is NAMI. 
Awesome. I'll have to look into them. I'm sure I already um, have come across them in my, my days of advocacy, but I'll have to, um, I'll have to look into more advocacy and events and things like that. Cause I would love to, I would love to be more involved. Yeah. Before I let you go, is there any last piece of validation or encouragement that you would really like to leave with listeners? You know, if anything that anyone can learn from our story is that there is hope. It can change. If you would have told me three years ago that I would have a functional husband back in my home. I mean, he's still, don't get me wrong. He's still mentally ill. He's still never going to have a full-time job, but functional as in he can talk, he can walk, he can take care of himself. He can try and take care of me. If you would have told me that three years ago, I would have literally cried and then laughed in your face because he was so severe. I mean, I wish I could show you pictures of what, you know, I've got some pictures where he literally looks like, like a homeless bum like on crack (laughs) you know and he I have videos scary things um but with the combination of for me and it's not for everybody but the combination of medication case management inpatient treatment facilities a lot of prayer a lot of faith and a lot of love I was able to literally at tough love get my husband back yeah. where I literally, he should have died many, many times, but almost 20 years later, he's alive. He's functioning. He can be here with me. He's on medication and he understands he needs to be on a medication and he understands what life is like without it. And it, it really can, it, you can really change somebody's life if, if they're willing to do it. And if they have the right resources, I could not have done it alone. He could not have done it alone, but together and with the resources of Wasatch Mental Health through Medicaid and my family and my church and my friends, we were able to come together and we were able to get remarried and we were able to live a beautiful life. And I didn't have to lose him to illness or to drugs. And that is a miracle, a true living miracle. And so if anybody's listening struggling themselves with mental illness, or if they have a loved one struggling with mental illness, I just beg you to look for your resources. Go to NAMI, go to your doctor, go to your church leader, your friend, someone, and let them know what's going on. Be honest about it because we hide it because it's scary and it's embarrassing to admit that your spouse or your loved one is on drugs or that your spouse or loved one is mentally ill, but tell somebody and ask for help and get it. Cause I'm telling you, it is worth it. I love that. You have such a beautiful story and I appreciate you being willing to share that with us in order to kind of spark change and spark yes. awareness um, for this whole conversation to even happen. Um, so maybe thank you so much for joining me today. You're so good. Thank you for asking me. I was totally out of the blue. I was like, wow. And I, I'd never thought about sharing my story, like on a public forum. I've always shared very openly in class and with people I meet. And so when you asked me, I thought, wow, this could really be a way to get this out to people. And hopefully, I mean, even if it just helps one person, it will be totally worth it. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored and privileged.
And with that, thank you all so much for tuning in today. I hope that both Mibi and I have brought some encouragement and education to your minds in regards to mental health stigma, social justice, and advocacy. If you know someone that would benefit from this episode, please send them this podcast. Be sure to check out and follow at Every Ounce of Strength on Instagram. And until next time, may you fight with every ounce. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please remember that this podcast, my Instagram account, or any other content on my website should not be used as a replacement for therapy or professional treatment. Eating disorders and mental health conditions are serious psychological and physiological illnesses that should be treated appropriately by licensed professionals. This space is simply for the purpose of community support, offering suggestions, giving hope, and encouraging recovery. Until next time, may you fight with every ounce of strength.